Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. With us today is Mohammed Hafez of the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, Mohammed, welcome to the program. Hi, Mark. So, a, a while back, uh, you wrote one of the first books that really detailed uh, the ways in which repression shaped uh, the strategic choices of Islamist movements, uh, Algeria, Egypt, places like that. And there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. And uh, I think the questions have changed and the kind of research that we do has changed. So what are you looking at now when you're trying to understand the kinds of strategic choices that these Islamist movements in the region are making? Right. One of the most interesting puzzles to emerge out of uh, contentious movements is the fact that these movements are not so united. As a matter of fact, the common finding today we find out in civil wars, insurgencies, and civil conflicts in general is that uh, these movements are fragmented, they're competitive, and sometimes they're fratricidal. And in that respect, that is a puzzle that just intrigues me. So give me an example of a fratricidal uh, movement or set of movements. Right. There are plenty of examples, some that come directly from the Middle East, my main area of focus. But the most fratricidal rebel movement we know is the Tamil Tigers. In the mid-1980s, there were about five major uh, Tamil insurgent groups, but the LTTE, the Tigers, the Tamil Tigers, ended up wiping all, all the others and, and forced them to join. But where my introduction into this phenomena uh, was my study of Algeria during the 1990s. There we had several movements, but the biggest one, the GIA, ended up going after its rivals, mainly the AIS, the GIA being the armed Islamic group going after the AIS, which is the uh, Islamic Salvation Army, uh, you know, using their French acronyms. So this really was a fascinating topic that was in, on my mind for a while, but now I'm really beginning to theorize it a bit more. So when you, when you look at that Algerian example, I think a lot of people misunderstand exactly what happened mm -hmm. when you go from the election of the Islamic Salvation Front to the military coup and then into the violence. Mm -hmm. and it's probably worth like taking a step back and look, looking at that a little more closely. Sure. So in 1991, there was an election where the Islamist, uh, the Islamic Salvation Front, the FIS, was about to win. Uh, the military stepped in, canceled the elections, arrested their leaders, threw them in jail, and in 1992 we begin to get the rise of armed groups and a, the rise of an insurgency and eventually a civil war. In that, in by 1994, the insurgents began to converge on this group called the Armed Islamic Gro uh, Group, which is the GIA. Uh, that development led the FIS to form their own armed wing largely to compete with the GIA, and that's when they formed the AIS, the Islamic Salvation mm -hmm. Army. And so you see immediately that groups are forming not just because they want to topple the regime, but because they want to fight or at least mm -hmm. compete with each other. Um, uh, yes, so that, those are the key developments that led yeah. to this kind of fratricide. And but it's, you know, it's an important thing to look at carefully, because I think a lot of people in, in, in the folk memory, it's that the Islamic Salvation Front, the FIS, uh, was toppled from power, and then they began an insurgency. Mm -hmm. And that's not what happened. And no, I think that, and that's an important thing for people to understand. It's not. Actually, some of the FIS leaders, uh, reminiscing what happened later on, uh, a few you know years later, said one of our biggest mistakes is that we did not call 
jihad early on, and that opened the field for uh, rival groups, uh, particularly ones who always rejected the democratic process, saw it as un-Islamic, uh, including some that came from what are known the Algerian Afghans, those who recently mm -hmm. came from Afghanistan, but essentially what today we call jihadi Salafists. They always rejected democracy and the democratic process, and they saw this as an opportunity, a confirmation of their belief system, but also an opportunity to compete with a major uh, Islamist faction uh, at that time. So it's less that moderates became radical and more that radicals waiting in the wings saw the opportunity no, no, moderate, and then struck. Uh, forgive me, but yeah, moderates did become radical. I mean, after, after the after radicalization, the coup, after yeah. the coup. Uh, but what happened is a lot of those uh, moderates that became radical were looking for an organizational framework by which to organize mm -hmm. their radicalism. Now, there were some that were associated with the feast, but the GIA was the most effective, most daring in its attacks. And the fact that it had Algerian Afghans, that sort of organizationally gave them mm -hmm. the edge. And so once it became that type of situation, mm -hmm. do you think that groups like the GIA um, have an inherent advantage in that kind of environment, or did it just happen to unfold that way? Um, well, they do have an advantage in the sense that some of their key leaders, as I said, came from the Algeria, uh, the, uh, the Afghan experience. Uh, uh, also, some drew on earlier rebel groups within um, uh, within Algeria. But real, I think the key difference here is not so much the organizational advantage, but the will to fight. The FIS believed that they had a window of opportunity to negotiate some sort of a return to an electoral process, largely because the Algerian government was uh, floundering, it was facing a tremendous legitimacy crisis, and they sort of did not really focus on the armed struggle as much as the GIA did. And I think that's the key. Uh, uh, that, that was the missing link in what led to the rise of the GIA. Now I think most people will listen to this today, and mm -hmm. and, and they'll they'll you'll you'll say Algeria, and mm -hmm. they'll hear Syria, and right, and they, they see those parallels. So walk us through what what are parallels, and what is kind of a false analogy? Right. Um, no, this is a great question, actually. So when your starting question was, where are, what are the other fratricidal uh, rebellions or fragmentary rebellions that we've seen? Certainly Al Qaeda in Iraq uh, is one, but ISIS is uh, another of those. Interestingly, when you hear some of the people that joined ISIS, they would tell you that the fragmentation of the insurgent field was something that made ISIS actually very attractive. It went in and said, we're the main group, you join us, and if you don't, we're going to wipe you out. And indeed, that's what happened. And they've, you know, on top of establishing order and, and, and some other uh, things uh, during, uh, you know, in around the 2013-2014 timeframe. But it also replicated a lot of the things that was happening in Algeria. So they insisted that they were the sole group anyone else had to, uh, that was around had to join them. They used violence against their rivals, including those who were ideologically similar to them, like the Nusra mm -hmm. Front. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are a lot of parallels between Syria and Algeria. And actually, that's sort of what motivated me recently to sort of go back to the Algerian right. case. So what do you think the lessons of that are? Is it inevitable that once you have this fragmented field, mm -hmm. you'll see the emergence of this kind of hardcore group that has this inherent advantage? So yes and no, in the sense that yes, that fragmentary uh, or fragmented uh, movements tend to fight a lot. 
and one of the side effects of that is that their violence tends to spill over into anti-civilian violence. And so this is a really bad uh, development. Now, of course, for some counterinsurgent uh, uh, authorities, this may not be so bad. But in terms of civilians that are around, uh, and, and certainly if you care about the cause of those movements, so if you really do care about, say, toppling the Assad regime, then you do want a more unified movement. But to answer your question is that, generally speaking, the greater level of fragmentation in movement, the greater level of competition, and the more likely you are to get infighting. So structurally, that's built in. Having said that, I try to make the case that only ideologically extreme groups tend to take it to the level where they're not just simply seeking to uh, fight and intimidate their rivals, but to annihilate them and remove them. And here I do think there is something about the ideology of some of these groups that's built into their DNA. So one of the things I'm interested in exploring is why is it that the GIA, AQI, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and ISIS in Syria tend to re replicate the same mistakes over and over uh, they, as if there is no history, no lessons learned. Um, and, and there, I think there's something about their ideological DNA that makes them lean in that direction. But how different is their ideological DNA between, say, ISIS and al-Nusra? Or for that matter, between those two groups and Ahrar al-Sham? I mean, right. it seems like you're talking about fairly fine-grained distinctions there, right. as opposed to the distinction between all of those groups and, say, the Muslim Brotherhood or you know, those types of groups. Right. Well, this is part of the research that uh, I'm working on a, uh, with a team on and defining ideological elements that we think uh, beyond big categories such as Islamists, Marxists, nationalists, there are actually really important debates within those movements. So anyone who studies Islamism would tell you that's a kind of a meaningless category because then you have, as you said, the Muslim Brotherhood and ISIS and so on. So here we think things like conception of the ideal polity, uh, if some Islamists are willing to compromise, others are not. And that's an important distinction that could lead to tremendous infighting. Uh, uh, can territorial aspiration. Ahrar al-Sham, for instance, wants to maintain the integral integrity of the Syrian national territory. ISIS does not. That seems like a small difference, but it's actually a very important difference. And we think those ideological divides actually can lead to competition of uh, you know, birds of a feather, uh, 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 but still can still compete with each other. So it sounds like from what you're saying that you would expect groups like ISIS and the GIA to go after more similar groups rather than going after their, their you know, distant ideological rivals. Exactly. So when you have a similar ideological uh, uh, umbrella, you're competing for the same constituency, probably the same funding sources, probably similar territories. And so that, that becomes an important source. So even though they seem to be ideologically harmonious, but the fact is that they, they do have ideological differences and they're competing over the same ideologically oriented field. Uh, let's go back to uh, this, this question of fragmentation, mm -hmm. and, um, and you mentioned funding sources a minute ago. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of people make the argument, I've made the argument, mm -hmm. that one of the things that drives the fragmentation of the Syrian insurgency is all of the different outside players who are, you know, who are mm -hmm. supporting local proxies and the mm -hmm. like. Um, it didn't seem quite that sort of thing happening in Algeria. Um, how important do you think that is in terms of creating the conditions for this kind of fratricidal violence? So we have to be very careful. That's a good question, but we have to be very careful about fragmentation and infighting. So yes, I do think external sponsorship is an important source of fragmentation, although there is literature that says 
uh, foreign sponsorship can actually create an institution right. where cooperation can take place between. So, it, you know, we're, the, yeah. the jury's still out on that. But having said that, I, I tend to agree with you that external money tends to fragment the movement because you want to differentiate yourself to be able to draw your own patron and money and, and fighters and so on. Having said that, all insurgent, I should say, you know, vast majority of insurgencies have had external sponsorship, and yet you still don't see the levels of intra-group violence. There, I think there are additional variables, and that's really mm -hmm. what we're trying. I'm, what I'm trying to get at. And you really think the ideological driver is what seems to have the most traction for you? Well, for now, <laughs> yeah, I do think there are. Uh, look, I mean, part of the the, the challenge here is, uh, do I want to approach this as a political scientist mm -hmm. with trying to figure out what is the key independent variable that's sort of causing this? Or do I want to approach as a historian who sort of looks at the aggregate of, of factors mm -hmm. that have come in? And, you know, uh, when I look at it more as a historian, I do think the ideology matters, but so does power and so does territorial control. And so there's, I mean, there's actually quite a range of hypotheses about what leads to this sort of uh, mm -hmm. competition and infighting. Let's go back to a little bit to your earlier work mm -hmm. then and um, kind of maybe before the insurgency gets mm -hmm. going. And so uh, you, the book that, um, that I first read of yours mm -hmm. was the one on the effects of repression. And why Muslims Rebel. Why Muslims Rebel. And you had this very important distinction between mm -hmm. kind of selective and mm -hmm. indiscriminate repression mm -hmm. and trying to track out the different types of effects that it mm -hmm. had on these kinds of movements. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we look around the Arab Spring now, or the post-Arab Spring, we see quite a variation mm -hmm. in terms of how the different governments have approached mm -hmm. uh, Islamist movements, sure. uh, from Egypt's model to, you know, Tunisia, or Algeria, mm -hmm. Morocco, and so when you when you look at this now and you try and draw the connection mm -hmm. between you know, your older research and the current mm -hmm. research, I mean, what what do you think that we should have learned um, right. at, at this point in terms of the effects of repression I mean, as a, as a way of governments controlling or responding to these Islamist movements? Right. So in that book, what the main argument was that. Um, Authoritarian governments tend to breed a kind of a, uh, a tendency towards rebellion, but, e but that in itself is not enough. The nature of state repression matters. So if you're selectively repressing groups as opposed to indiscriminately repressing groups, that's going to likely to generate different uh, mm -hmm. conflict dynamics. And I think this actually has been borne out in the current Arab Spring. So we see Syria deploying a rather <clears throat> indiscriminate uh, violence uh, against its populations, and obviously we've seen where, that's where that has gotten us. In the case of Egypt, it's interesting. Back then and today, it still gives me trouble. I mean, the government has been quite repressive. No one can argue, and, and it hasn't necessarily been as selective. Um, and levels of violence in Egypt have increased. Uh, some estimates have increased by 70% or so on, but it is not the same as Syria. So uh, I think, so there are lessons to be learned, but on the other hand, there are still complexities or complications to that argument. Having said that, I would argue that, generally speaking, the more inclusive the government, the more selective it is in its repression, the more likely you are to channel movements towards conventional forms of, uh, of political contestation. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the more repressive the regime, or the more exclusionary the regime and indiscriminate its repression, the more likely we are to see things like Syria uh, uh, today. See, what's interesting about the, about the Egyptian experience right mm -hmm. now is that um, in many ways they've gone after the infrastructure, the mm -hmm. organizational structure of the, mm -hmm. uh, the movement of the Muslim Brotherhood, mm -hmm. which could be creating the kind of fragmentation that mm -hmm. you're describing. And I, I'm curious, I, I, 
and I'll put you on the spot, but mm-hmm. you know what what might you expect the results of that to be? Would it create the kind of infighting and spiral of violence that you talked about before, or does it just lead to the movement kind of turning inward? Yeah. And well, we don't need to just look at what's happening now. We could look at the history of the Muslim Brotherhood when they were repressed in the 50s. That led to the fragmentation of the movement with the Qutbis and then mm-hmm. the rise of the Takfiris and so on. So yes, when the government represses, what it does is it creates an opportunity for a new generation of leaders to seize the opportunity. But it also creates, it, it derails the narrative of the groups that are saying that, look, we could work within the extant order. Here what we see is, you know, the fact is people have tried elections, tried the democratic process, and it didn't work. And that feeds into the radical narrative, which fragments the movement. So yes, I'm, uh, I think the Muslim Brotherhood is likely to face fragmentation. I mean, in this case, it's really facing annihilation. Uh, but to the extent that there is some sort of a, a, a political opening or a rapprochement, I suspect that the Muslim Brotherhood would not come back in the form that it is today. What about a place like Jordan, where you have mm-hmm. this back and forth game with uh, mm-hmm. with the regime, the this intentional effort to try mm-hmm. and create competing groups, mm-hmm. but also a much stronger and more powerful Salafi mm-hmm. jihadist presence? Right. Um, what 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 does that kind of arena end up looking like? Right. So part of the risk of this cat and mouse game with the, sort of the conventional Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan is that one, it makes those groups appear to be in cahoots with the government. At a minimum, they appear to be ineffective in actually uh, leading to real change within society. And it's no accident that there is a strong strand of Salafism and even jihadi Salafism within Jordan. Jordan is one of the countries that has produced, uh, I, th- I think, I'm, I'm trying to think here, on a per capita basis or more generally, has produced a lot of foreign fighters, and there's tremendous concern in Jordan for those returning individuals. I think, you know, at a certain point, playing this cat-and-mouse game of including these groups to co-opt them can work, but if it persists as a long-term strategy, then it actually can lead to fragmentation with the rise of more radical actors. So generally speaking, you think that fragmentation is a bad thing? Uh, well, if you're a, if you're a counterinsurgent in the case of, say, the United States and Iraq during the, you know, the middle 2000s, mm-hmm. it wasn't a bad thing. The U.S. was able to exploit fragmentation to be able to turn Sunni nationalists against al-Qaeda radical jihadists, and that worked. Uh, so in that respect, no, fragmentation is not always bad. It depends on your perspective. To be honest, I'm, I'm much, you know, a person who's uh, interested in seeing uh, some regimes sort of transform in the Middle East into the direction of more democracy, freedom, and liberty. And in that sense, I do see fragmentation as being a hindrance to achieving that. Because a fragmented group is less able to impose discipline less able to make conscious strategic choices, that sort of thing? Lots of things, but the first and foremost is that when you're fragmented, you're competing, right? And when you're competing, you're not keeping your eye on the prize, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that's one uh, possible uh, dynamic there. Actually, there is literature that says fragmentation is not bad because it makes it difficult for the government to repress you when you're <laughs> fragmented. So it, it, I think there are lots of puzzles, and this is a really an interesting field. I know a lot of people are getting into studying, and I think for the right reasons. All right. Well, we've been talking with Mohammed Hafez of the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, Mohammed, thanks for joining the program. Thanks, Mike.